What's the Point? with Anna Neal and Dan Chisholm. Welcome to What's the Point? music podcast episode 6. Today's guest is Simon Raymond. His dad, Ivor Raymond, was a successful writer. He wrote Dusty Springfield's huge debut solo hit, I Only Want to Be With You. But it wasn't until the arrival of punk in the mid-1970s that Simon took an interest in a career in music. Simon is best known as being the bass guitarist and keyboard player with the band The Cocteau Twins. Not only that, he's also a producer and label boss of an award-winning indie record label, Bella Union. I can only go on what I believe is a great piece of music, is a great band. Until the idiots at the top finally start seeing some sense, change is going to be painfully slow. If you're a self-made DIY artist, you don't need a label. What's the point? Simon, thanks for joining us today. We talked a lot in previous episodes about the current state of the music industry. How do you view it? It's easy to be just pissed off with everything about the industry at times because it is infuriating. There is absolutely no doubt about that. But I grew up through the download era with two teenagers who had at one point had more songs in their iTunes than I did. You know, and they didn't buy any of them. They were all downloaded for free. And it did worry me enormously because I thought, well, if my teenagers are doing it, then uh, all teenagers in the world are doing it. Therefore, our industry is totally screwed. And watching them on the sofa, you know, one headphone in one ear, typing messages on the other, watching TV at the same time whilst eating food. <laughs> you know, it's like the multitasking of our teenagers <laughs> was blowing my mind. And it did annoy me for a, for a brief period. But then after a while, you just think, well, that's pretty talented to be able to do all those things. I can barely do one thing well at a time, let alone four. So you just have to kind of take your hat off to people and just not not be drawn into this kind of like, well, when I was a youngster, <laughs> we never did that. You know, and I, I'm just really keen not to go down that road and just to actually embrace it all and go, well, listen, better than listening to music at all than than not because there was a period where I thought okay music's just dead it's just dead it's Netflix and it's games and that's all kids want to listen to but I don't believe that's true anymore it's begging a question which I feel I have to ask at this point although we were probably going to put it back until later and that's the the subject of being the boss of a record company in in this very environment you've described not easy no, not easy, but uh, challenges are always something I, I relish. To be honest with you, I've 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 had a lot of challenges in my in my uh, in my short sixty years on the planet, and um, I don't find this one to be too difficult. There's a lot going on and a lot of noise, you know, about vinyl production. The pressing plants are all under pressure and timing of releases and how how are bands coping obviously the pandemic's thrown so much of it up in the air like no 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 touring the venues have all struggled people who work you know away from the limelight like the the, the sound people the lighting people all those people have been starved of work there's, there's a lot to be upset about and to moan about whilst i accept all that stuff and i, I totally empathize i'm more of a kind of okay well look that is the situation how do we resolve it and how do we get past it and move forward? I'm that kind of guy, you know, I'm not somebody that sort of gets too bogged down in the in the darkness. I'm trying to sort of look for little pockets of light there to kind of focus on and lead people through it because, you know, I have a lot of artists on my label and they, they a lot of them are really super young and I haven't been through anything 
quite like this before. Well, none of us have. So you need somebody just to reassure you that it's all going to be okay. So the industry stuff to me, it is what it is, right? It's not perfect. It's a, it's a goddamn mess. That's no doubt about that. But you just have to move through it and not get too bogged down in the detail. Yeah, okay, so I run Bella Union and, and I'm a sort of industry person. But really, I'm just that same 14-year-old punk kid that got into the pistols when Nevermind the Bollocks came out. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm still that same guy, really. I'm trying to kind of be rather punk rock about it. Don't have the answers. I'm not bright enough to be sort of forging the way forward with some new format or I don't have solutions. I only have like energy and passion and um, just trying to be positive about it. And that's, that's sort of my way forward, really. Talking about the label thing, because we're on the label side of things now, we've had the whole DCMS streaming inquiry and that was very much focused on major labels. Has the whole streaming debate that we've had been something that's affected your label and your artists? Yes, it affects all artists. You know, if, if, if they're getting poorly paid, that is something that's definitely a problem. And, you know, one only has to take take your hat off to uh, all the people, you know, like Tom and Broken Records and everyone that sort of fought the good fight because without that, we wouldn't have this little path to something better. And, and of course, of course, we should be paid better for our streaming rights. You know, I've been arguing it with Beggars, my own label from the past, for donkey's years. You know, but all you can do, you, you, you can, if you're in a position of weakness with your contract if your contract says one thing and you go back and go yeah but it's basically unfair right you'd really need to revise it there is no obligation on the record label to do anything about it other than go yeah i hear you it is quite unfair but there you go <laughs> you signed it so get on with it and, and that's what you know you do sort of develop quite a thick shell against all these things so being a bit older and having been through so many disappointments in my life, not just in music, but personally, you develop some kind of like, okay, nothing much is can really damage me. It's just music at the end of the day. We will work a solution out. If enough people go become vocal and say these things are unfair and wrong at the same time, then something will no doubt be done about it and that's kind of what's happened unfortunately it's taken way too long for that moment to occur but i could say that about anything i could say that about politics look i went through the thatcher years i've you know not, i won't swear but i you know i couldn't bear that woman and what she did to the country and what i've always disliked right-wing politics and i thought we were rid of it racism thought we were rid of it <laughs> Go back 40 years, I thought, oh, finally, you know, looks like we're moving on to something a bit more wholesome. Here we are in 2021, and all we talk about is all of these things still again. Until governments, until people, the idiots at the top, finally start making, seeing some sense, change is going to be painfully slow. Have you found that it's impacted you as a label though has it has it financially had repercussions for, for Bella Union I don't I really know I mean I don't know because we haven't had any better than what we've got I guess if you look back to the sort of heyday of Bella Union in terms of physical sales um, you would have to say maybe 2008 9 10 when, when we when we when we released the Fleet Foxes 
the two Fleet Foxes albums. The first one sold basically a million records around Europe. I would say probably 800,000 of those were physical. Okay, <laughs> just get your head around that for a minute. A million sales, 800,000 of which were physical, m m mostly CD. Now that would could never happen again. So we're, what are we, only sort of 10, 12 years on from that. So yeah, massively different from that period because you know the amount of income that you're going to generate from a million physical well 800,000 physical sales completely surpasses anything you're going to you're going to generate from a million streams but it is what it is the label is still functioning we're still going out there we're still paying large advances to the artists that deserve the large advances that can sell the large quantities of records are they ever going to sell fleet foxes amounts of records no absolutely impossible we could never get there again. Artists who work in the pop domain, they make those, they, they, they deliver those kind of numbers because, you know, on the streaming sense, 100, 200, 300, 400 million streams equates to one heck of a load of sales. We don't work in that domain, so our results are, 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 are much smaller than that. I have to be really honest and just say, I don't look at the numbers. Don't look at them. Don't doesn't interest me in the slightest bit. If you ask me how many records any of our recent artists have sold, how many they've streamed, what their YouTube numbers are, I couldn't tell you because I actually don't care. It doesn't interest me. I never look at the numbers when I'm signing a band, ever. How many Twitter follows they've got. I just don't care. I can only go on what I believe is a great piece of music, is a great band. Because the numbers just are fake anyway. People buy their likes, people buy their followers. So, so if I'm a label and I go and see a new band and they've got 1,000 plays and I go, oh, well, that's not very good. But I look at uh, the next week I go back and they've got 100,000 plays. Am I suddenly supposed to go, oh, that's good? It's either good or it isn't good or it either excites you or it doesn't excite you. That's kind of where I'm at. I'm not really interested in the business side of, of Bella Union that much. I'm interested in keeping in business. <laughs> I'm interested in staying in business, but I do that by having a smart lawyer and a smart accountant who can say, you carry on and do what you do, you're doing fine. Or, Simon, you need to stop signing bands because there's no money left. When that happens, we will be having another chat about what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. What you've just painted is the picture of the importance of uh, giving artists who are used to the digital age the experience of being part of a record company that goes through this process of taking the recordings, putting it to, to vinyl, for example, and giving people a real experience. But at the same time, I guess you, you're aware that there are people who have that debate over whether or not record companies are still relevant. And to that end, you need to keep ahead of the game, don't you? Yeah, you do to a degree. But I, I'll, always, I'll always counter that argument because, you know, Radiohead has said it, you know, finally, they have a record label. Lots of bands have said it. A lot of artists who work in different kinds of genres than me say it and I absolutely agree with them in many cases you don't need one if you're a self-made DIY artist who's working in a kind of studio like this producing your own music you don't need a label you could just do everything through Bandcamp or just go straight to the straight to, to Spotify yourself and build up your own profile using smart social awareness there's lots of different people around the world of all different creeds, colour, race, religion, 
and there needs to be a space for them all in the same way that not all bands have the savvy or the style of music to fulfill that self-perpetuating role i need to be here to help some of those bands that i, I definitely do Listen, if Father John Misty, Beach House, Explosions in the Sky, Dirty Three, Flaming Lips all thought the way that I'm being told bands are now thinking, which is labels are dead, then why are they still with me? Because I don't have a contract with them that keeps them here forever, unlike my previous band deal with Beggars, which is an in-perpetuity deal, i.e. they own the stuff forever. I don't do deals like that. I don't own anybody's masters nobody's i borrow them for a short period of time when i invest in the artist try and help them get to a position where they can make some money and crack on with their lives and then when the deal is done we say well how's that going are we all happy are you happy am i happy yeah okay well let's carry on doing to do another couple of albums together and if it wasn't working and bands didn't think that this was the right way to go because for sure a band like beach house could probably almost certainly just put their records out themselves and probably make way more money than they do with with their respective record labels but they don't why do you think that is it's because there's a comfort system there there's a there's an infrastructure a team where ideas can be thrown around where relationships have been built and blossomed over well in beach house's case 12 13 years and you don't just throw that away and I think those, those relationships are massively important to the artists. If I didn't, then I, I truly would give it up. If I actually believed that labels were useless and dead, and, and a lot of them are, believe me, I, I hate record labels mostly. <laughs> I, I would stop doing what I do, but I really do feel that I, I've got something that's of value to a small, tiny minority of bands. This is a point in a podcast where I'd hit the heart emoji. <laughs> and just have a whole flutter of hearts come up the podcast. <laughs> You're obviously doing something right, aren't you? Because, I mean, is it four times now that you'll, or certainly to my knowledge, four times that you've been voted best indie label of the year? So there's a great deal of respect among the retailers for what you do. Yeah, I, th I think we should, yeah, I think we should have won a lot more than that. <laughs> I, I'm, I really do. I think since we, since, since the fourth time, I think there was a general consensus amongst many of the other labels who are probably starting to say hold on a minute this this isn't right that one label can win it four times in whatever it was six years i do get that and there was a there was a year or two where i thought i don't know i don't think we had that amazing a year and then there's been years where we've had absolutely blinding years and we haven't even been nominated so you know awards to a degree you have to sort of just take it with a pinch of salt because but I mean, I mean in the context, though, of the fact that it shows that you're doing something right, doesn't it? Yes, and I love that bit, and I love the bit the most that the awards are voted for by the retailers, as you very rightly stated, because a lot of the Music Week awards are, you know, are just daft awards about absolutely nothing. But that one actually does mean something, because it's actually retail that is the most important part of the chain. You know, and for me, having come from a, a, a record shop background, it's crucially important because without the music press being as important as it once was, 
how do you discover new music unless unless you're just watching you know new music friday well that that's not going to tell you very much it's going to confuse you more than it's going to tell you going into record shops and building that relationship with your local indie store is i think a, a beautiful way to learn about music and I certainly learned very learned a lot that way, and I know a lot of people who come in our shop. Oh, we've been there five years now, and we still have, you know, a massive uh, um, repeat customer who who enjoys the experience of coming in and saying, "I don't know what 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 do I buy," you know, and to to be able to say, "Well, uh, you know, what did you get last time?" And you know, you build up that trust and that relationship about passing things on. It's all about curation, isn't it? Um, and I love curating, whether it's a radio show I'm doing or whether it's putting together a festival bill or a compilation of my dad's stuff or even a, a record like Lost Horizons, which I've, I've made recently. In a way, it's all about curation and curation is something that I love, I love to do. And this is why I'm worried about coming to your shop, Simon, because I think I might be bankrupt by the time I leave. <laughs> well, I don't this, think so. This, this is my understanding of music, you see, going into a record store, having <laughs> recommendations, feeling the product and having some excitement about it. So let's talk about, you started this label, why? Not the reason you'd imagine, that's for sure. Certainly not to run a record label. Robin and I, like, he was in the cocktails with me and we, uh, we'd had relatively unsuccessful relationships with our two record labels previously. We've tried the indie label, we've tried the major label, let's start our own label that's the way to go and then no one can question what we do because there isn't anyone there it's just you and me so that was the theory and for six months it seemed like a great theory but then elizabeth the singer of the band just had had enough of everything by then and um, it's a long long story the cocktail twins one by the way so you know for anyone um who wants to have dinner tonight? That this isn't the time to tell that story because I'll, I'll it's, come to dinner. it's way fine. Can, it's way too long. So, so 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 she left, and then the label was like, okay, so we don't have a label to put Cocktail music out on. So what's the point in having a label? But I think because I was a bit of a loose end, at a, at a bit of a loose end with you know the band now gone. I just put out the first record was 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 my first was my own solo record that was Bella CD one, uh, 1997, and then we signed the Dirty Three, which was very significant. Between those two, which was the Dirty Three Ocean Songs was Bella CD three, and in between that was was signing a band called the Zars, which of course is John Grant, uh, who's become you know one of the, the the biggest artists on the label. So. I don't think I really knew what I was doing in terms of running a record label for, I don't know, five years maybe. It all seemed just like making it up as you went along. But working out slowly, like, oh, those people aren't great. That, that, that PR company are not the right one. That distributor, they're not the right one. And, you know, making loads of mistakes, because usually that's, that's the best way to learn anything, isn't it? Just totally mess it up and then realise you, you need to, to change if you're going to continue. And then... Some major catastrophes happened, like uh, our distributors went bust, owing us 100 grand. That was one hole I wasn't sure I would ever be able to climb out of. And then about a month later, after we'd climbed out of that hole, the company we then chose to work with, who we licensed all our stuff to, they went bust, also owing us about the same amount of money. So within a very short space of time, you know, I was like on my knees with no clue 
how I would continue and absolutely almost certain that I wouldn't. But I'm quite a resilient person. I'm not like somebody that gives up. And you know, gosh, here I am 25 years later. Mm. Don't ask me how I did it because I literally don't know. Well, that's avoided the next question then. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> that's you stuffed. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, in all seriousness, there is a lesson for us all that those who very often succeed are those who just keep going in pursuit of the dream. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I mean, I didn't know that about myself, if you know what I mean. I didn't know that I was particularly resilient or, or not somebody that give up quickly. But it's just how you react to certain situations. And I just loved the job. You know, I actually, I'd, although I'd stopped making music myself, which is another weird sort of side issue of, of running a record label, I think I got so sort of consumed with everyone else's life everyone else's careers trying to help them get up from down there in the in the kind of dirt and help them get up a little bit into the, the next level I, I i put so much time and investment into that i kind of forgot about my own creative interests and i left it way way too long to sort of rediscover that and and in a way the passion i have for it now i think has been uh, uh extended by the fact that before it was too late, before I just suddenly gave, got so fed up with running a record label during all this mess, income dropping, the, then the pandemic and all this. The reason I, I love it still, still so much is because I've been able to now return to music making. And that has given me a whole new perspective, a whole new lease of life, really. I wonder whether you might, at this point, just tell us a bit about Lost Horizons. Well, the idea of it started around about 2015-16. The label was approaching its 20th anniversary. You know, always planning all these kind of events and releases and whatnot. And uh, I, was, I should have been really feeling ex exhilarated by the fact that we'd managed to get through two decades without going bankrupt. And um, I was not really... I couldn't work out what it, what it was where I wasn't feeling as good as I should have been. And then I was like... Yeah, obvious mate you haven't made any music for too long i'd kind of made a record in 2012 with my ex-girlfriend stephanie um, but it was really more her thing than my thing but i had been involved in the music making and i had really enjoyed it so it'd give me a little taste of it but i thought i need to do my own thing like that's it's not really a band i don't want to be in a band the cocktail twins breaking up I didn't ever really grieve it properly, right? I just sort of got on with life. I'm like, oh, well, there you go. Liz has left the band. That sucks pretty bad, but I think I'll just dust myself down and crack on with this record label. And then 20 years later, I'm like, okay, I do not want to be in another band because, because I don't want to go through any of that rubbish all over. And I don't really want to have to deal with someone else's ego in terms of the music making. I just want it to be me, but I don't really want to sing because I can't stand my own voice. <laughs> so I kind of <laughs> called an old friend of mine called Richie Thomas, who uh, was in an old 4AD band, not a very short, quite a short-lived band called Diff Jazz. They were an instrumental kind of post-punk dubby band and they were they were our favorite band in the early 80s. We took them on two of us. And we were great friends with them. They actually helped us build our... Uh, our very first studio. I've kept in touch with, with them 
but with Richie for, for, for years, and he's one of the most incredible drummers out there. And I, I didn't want to program the drums, so I thought, I know, I'll, I'll just call Richie and see if he fancies just messing about. All I care about is just going in a room with a piano or a bass or whatever it is, guitars, and just having a thrash around, you know, as if I'm 15 again. That, that was really the motivation. He also had exited the music business in, in terms of music making many years ago. He'd got totally disappointed with the, with the business. So me ringing him was quite a good moment because he was like, oh, mate, I'd, I'd love to do that. It'd be such fun. So we basically just went in a room. Messed about is the best way I can put it. So what we did was we recorded those messings about. So I would sit down at the piano. He'd, he'd say, he'd, he'd go and sit at the drum kit and I'd be messing about. And he'd go, no, that's good. Carry on playing that. And I'd go, what? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just messing about. He'd go, it doesn't matter. Just carry on playing it. He'd play along with me and we'd record it. So we did this for, I think, four days. And slowly over the course of the next few months, I just started listening to the bits and pieces that we'd done. And when I liked a bit, I would maybe play bass over the top of it. And then I'd maybe put a guitar over the top of that. And then over the next year or so, these bits and pieces suddenly became like not songs because they didn't have lyrics or melodies, but they became like instrumental songs. At that point, Richie was just doing the drums. He wasn't really doing anything else. And I was putting all the music on myself. So to cut a long story short, I finished many of the pieces and I thought, okay, who can I envisage singing on this track? And I would think of the person, the person would come into my mind, and then I would email them and say, hello, sorry, I just banged the microphone. Hello, <laughs> I'm Simon. I've done this thing. I like your voice. Would you like to sing on this? This is the kind of stuff that's going on in my brain while I was writing these pieces of music. You can take that or leave it or just do your own thing but would you like to be involved? The only criteria being is that you just have fun with it and you don't take it too seriously and you just do it because you love it, not because it's me writing to you. And, you know, before too long, I pretty much had, uh, like, I don't know, 15 tracks finished. And then we did it all over again more recently, much better, I think, with the second LP, uh, In Quiet Moments. So the first one came out in 2017, which was the 20th year of Bell Union. And then the most recent one just came out, kind of half of it came out last year and half of it came out this year because it was a long album. It was 16 tracks, all with different vocalists. And it's something I'm extremely proud of because I you know, recorded a lot, of, well, pretty much most of it in here. Uh, I mixed it all myself, which I'm very proud of because I've never done that before. So I, I sort of really felt great about it and I still feel great about it. And I, I can't really say that about anything that I've done before. I can listen to all the Cocktail Swims records and go, yeah, there's some really beautiful moments and this is a really wonderful record, but this, I really feel, is my best work. I guess I always listen to the Cocktail Twins albums and I always found that creative freedom and expression in that music because it was so different, you know, no, no lyrics to speak of, you know, very groundbreaking in terms of the sounds. How do you feel about that music looking back on it now? Oh, I love it. I think it's incredible what we did. You know, obviously some things more than others. That's that's natural over a period of uh, whatever it is, 13, 14 years I was in the band. So, yeah, super proud of it. Um, certainly, if I had to pick two records, I think that Blue Bell Null in 1988 and, and Heaven Las Vegas in 1990 were, were probably our two best-sounding records. Um, but there's bits on, on other ones that are equally beautiful. And, um, you know, I'm very, very proud of the time 
that we had. It's infused, though, with a lot of bad memories and, and bad experiences that are nothing really to do with the music. So it's quite hard for me to detach myself from it and, and have that perspective that a fan would have where they just literally listen to it and going, oh, this is gorgeous. I'm listening to it going, it's gorgeous, but fuck, that was hard. That week, God, that was a nightmare. And, you know, there's so many sort of bad memories associated with it. It's really hard for me to just just be totally cool with everything that we did. Although I'm finding it easier as time passes. Uh, and I think actually the Tim's Twit listening parties that, that I've done for for the two two of the Cocteau's records, I think I did two or maybe three. Two, yeah. For Four Calendar Cafe, which was which was the uh, the penultimate Cocteau's record and Heaven Las Vegas. I found them quite moving and profound experiences listening to them. And then talking online with people who are also listening to them live because you, you basically I don't I'm sure you know about it you know the premise of it is that at a certain set time everybody listens to the record that's the chosen album of the day and that can be literally thousands tens of thousands of people all in different places around the world all listening to your record at the same time it's quite a profound experience and then you're interacting with them live on Twitter and it's um it's like the most analog of digital things, yeah. right? Because it's real. It's, it's like doing a gig in a way. There's certainly mm -hmm. the experiences of, of relatable experiences are unique. Time does go incredibly quickly. So I, I did prepare first and listen back to the LP, Heaven Las Vegas, the day before. And I, I basically cried the whole way through just listening back to it um, because it just... Hey, it's beautiful. It's, it's a really gorgeous sounding record, but it just brought back all these memories. Not all good ones, you know. It's an art form. An art form is an expression. And it's not always going to be, yeah, that was really good fun. I had great fun in the studio. We had an amazing time because it's hard work. Yeah, but I think what happens is that, you know, in, with, with hindsight, which, of course, is a wonderful thing, you, you, you realise <laughs> that some of the most significant records or, or tunes that you might have been involved with have the most power because they are imbued with this energy, good or bad, you know, and I think there's, there's no doubt there was so much going on with us as a band during those two records, specifically Heaven Las Vegas, that I think things that are sort of at polar opposites. My father died r r right in the middle of, of making the record. On the contrary side, Robin and Liz had, had their first baby during the making of the record. So, you know, birth and death all in the same month kind of thing. These things, you can listen to the record and not know any of that stuff and it's still beautiful, but knowing it, it just sort of adds another layer, which I think is why music is one of the most powerful art forms out there because as a band, the way Cocteau Twins existed in terms of the recording craft, if you can even call it that, and I wouldn't even dare calling it that, it's like Lost Horizons, it's all made up, it's all improvised. I know that doesn't sound very likely, but believe me, it is. I still work now in exactly the same way I worked then, and not, not because I'm copying it, it's because it's, the, it's, it's what I know, it's what I feel most comfortable with, and it also fits into my lifestyle, because in the Cocteau Twins days, how would a day in the studio work? Okay, come in in the morning, mess about on the drum machine for a minute, get a beat, a two-bar pattern, so, you know, literally... 10 seconds of, of drums, loop it, record it onto two-inch tape for about three minutes, or actually three minutes 30, we found after a few years, was, was the time we were sitting around chatting and then suddenly realised 
that we were getting a bit bored and we'd look at the clock and it would be around about 3.30. Okay, that's enough of that. Press stop. Then we would record our song by plugging... I'd plug in a bass, Robin would plug in some guitar into some weird new pedal or outboard gear that we'd bought that made an f- amazing sound. We would suddenly come up with a tune within a few minutes, then we'd work it into an arrangement, then we'd record it. Half an hour later, we had a piece of music that was pretty much finished. And then Liz would come in and sing on it. I know that sounds totally simplistic and unlikely, but that's kind of how it worked for all all those 14 years. And I still do the same now because it's really quick and it's fun and you don't know, you have got no idea what's going to happen when you come in in the morning. And you have to be... You have to be brave, right? You have to just go with it. And you also have to realise that some days what comes out is just utter garbage. And you just have to not worry about that and go bowling or, you know, go for a walk on the beach and then come back the next day and try again. And that's sort of what we did, you know. We we never talked about music, ever. I think the most we ever talked about was what sort of tempo? Slow? Fast? What do you think? (laughs) and that would be our conversation about music and then we would just do the music and it would come out of us and I know that sort of sounds a bit silly but um, that's just how it was The one thing that this captures which I know has been a frustration for so many people is if you write a song and you get a great hook you get great lyrics and you're ready to go and you do an outline demo of the song and then you take it to a studio and you go in. By the time you go in to record that, you lose that freshness. And what you're doing by working that way is capturing exactly exactly that. Yeah, I think that's massively important for me. And it's really funny you say that because the stuff we did on, well, on both records really, but the, the stuff we did on the first Lost Horizons record, because of the very nature of it, the fact that I hadn't really played an instrument in, in the studio for, for, I don't know, many years, there was it was littered with mistakes. Like the piano, it was loads of bum notes in there. And because I'd done it on a real grand piano, uh, I, could, I couldn't fix it. You know, I either had to com- completely replace it, which I didn't really want to do, or just get over it. And by the time I'd added, like, a bass part and a bunch of guitars, and I didn't even hear the mistakes anymore. I mean, I can hear them now, but they're not, like... Listen, if they were like so painfully bad that I I couldn't deal with listening to it because I have got a really acute pitching problem. I, I hate things that are out of tune. If it was that bad, I, I probably would have done something. But, you know, they were just like bum notes that weren't terrible. And I just got on with it because I thought, you know what, I like that. That's just how it was. So I don't need to, to, to sort of fix it because there's nothing wrong with the mistakes. Look at jazz from the 40s and 50s, you know, there's loads of bum notes in there in a lot of those live recordings, but that's actually what makes them fresh and exciting. I think this is an important thing for songwriters to understand that it doesn't all have to be on a computer putting in hooks. I feel like they've lost that experimentation and that, that freedom to just be a musician. People are still writing like that and you are releasing I think it's when it's, uh, yeah, I I totally hear what you're saying. I think it's when you sort of get drawn into this, it's not a competition exactly, but like sort of comparison. My brother works in the the pop music field. You know, he's he's incredibly successful in in that field. I have no idea what he's talking about and no idea what that music means, that the, the stuff that's in the charts. It, it just, it's, it's like white noise. It, I can't relate to it 
in the same way that he can. The interesting thing is I do really respect it and I do really admire that it, in its own way it is a craft. You know, even though it's super formulaic and everything has to be here in exactly this right place, to me it it doesn't sort of register in my body as anything interesting. But at the same time, in the same way that I can look at a Sudoku puzzle and appreciate how clever it is or, or a maths problem and appreciate how clever it is. It's got that sort of side to it. I don't get it. I don't want to have anything to do with it, but I sort of grudgingly admire it. There's a place for everything out there. You know, there's there's obviously some incredible pop songs being written each and every day. Uh, it's just when it becomes like white noise for me that I just I just don't get it. You know, he's telling me that, oh, you've, got to, you, you've heard that song, right? It's, 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 it's 300 million people have downloaded it this week. I'm like, no, I've never heard it. And he'll play it to me. He'll go, that one, come on, you, you know that song. And I'll be like, mate, I've never heard it. It just doesn't cross my radar, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not because I'm a snob. Well, no, I am. I am a snob. But it, it doesn't, <laughs> just doesn't come across my radar. And that, that's just fact. I don't know why it doesn't. It doesn't come across my feeds. I don't know anything about the names. But because I'm just, I suppose I'm just obsessed with my own little thing. And my own little thing is a tiny little thing. And I don't expect anyone else to know that much about my world either. I certainly don't expect him to know about my world. I'm totally aware of that. So it's interesting that, you know, in this great big music business, there's things going on that people on the other side have absolutely no idea about at all. And I guess you could say that about anything, whether it's science or, or films or, or literature, you know, whatever area we, we tend to work in, we just maybe become a bit expert in our own little one area. As this is what's the point of an independent record label, what is the point of an independent record label? Well, from my perspective, there's so many points. I suppose if I have to pick one, it's just to pass on some of the experiences that I've developed and and been through myself to help people understand that you don't have to do things that way, this way. You can do it any way you like. I think the great thing about independence right now is there isn't a right way and a wrong way. There's just whatever way seems to make the most sense for you. And I think we get so hung up on, you know, well, well the timeline has to look like this. It's, you know, the first single's here and then, then take risks onto radio and then we do that and then three months later we, we, we announce the album and then we lead. I just think, really, it doesn't really matter anymore because nobody cares. Nobody's really paying any that much attention. If you want to do this this way because that says more about you as an artist, then we're going to go with that. Because there's no real scientific evidence that the formula for putting records out, whether it's on an independent label or on a major label, over the last 10 or 15 years, really has a significant effect. If you want to just wake up tomorrow morning and put your album out on Bandcamp, I can't really tell you with any certainty that a three-month build-up of this first and then that track to radio and this one to Spotify, I can't really, with, with my hand on my heart, say that that formula works any better than just putting the record out on Bandcamp tomorrow. It, it might do, but it also might not. And there's so many variables in this business that you really have just to let people know that it's okay to do things in a way that might seem a bit strange. And that, that's my kind of mantra for right now is like when bands go, what should we do? And I say, what do you want to do? 
feel free feel feel able and willing to be part of your own process don't just hand your record over and go okay well there it is what what should we do you know and i think that's it that's an important role of a label is to sort of give them options and and tell them it's uh it's all going to be okay because <laughs> it isn't <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Simon it's been a, a pleasure to talk to you it's been really really interesting I've really enjoyed it and um, thank, yeah, you, thank you so much for joining us no worries at all lovely to talk to you both what's the point point?